Hi, everybody. I'm Brian Norcross, and this is podcast number six, where we talk about hurricanes and we talk about weather. And we're here at Local 10 WPLG in Miami. And I'm along with my partner in this, uh, Luke Doris, the weekend meteorologist here. Luke, welcome back. Well, thank you. Thank you. We've got a good one today. We do have a really interesting one today. You know, uh, anybody that's been around Hurricane World for very long, uh, just on a very subjective level, kind of knows that hurricanes come in clumps. It seems like they go bang, bang, bang in a busy year. Yeah. And then suddenly it stops. And it might stop for a week. It might stop for two weeks. And then it kind of, there might be another little clump. You sort of, you know, just kind of feel that having done it for a long time. Mm -hmm. And so the question has always been, I remember thinking this very clearly, why in the world would it do that? Because the ocean temperature didn't really change. The atmospheric pattern didn't really change that much. Then when they were kind of going bang, 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 and every little wave would generate into uh, some kind of tropical storm or a hurricane, and we were constantly having to follow them. So there must be something else going on. And uh, indeed, we're going to talk about today those mysterious forces in the atmosphere called the MJO and Kelvin waves and and whatever else, and, and how they affect hurricanes and, and hurricane forecasts. And in just a minute, Mike Ventress, who is a meteorological scientist with the Weather Company, a division of IBM, uh, in Massachusetts, and is a renowned expert on these things, is going to join us. And I remember when uh, Mike was in graduate school at the University of Albany, and he started talking about these uh, this phenomena. And, and that, not that I had never heard of it before, but I think it was really because of Mike's work that uh, I started paying more attention to it, and we started talking about it more at the Weather Channel. Uh, so it's only been this decade, I think, that that really this has been on our radar. But, I can't wait to learn about it. And, I, you know, I, I have a very basic understanding of what these are. These have been, you know, you, you hear about them. We, we touched on them, I think, one day in college. You know, they right. just barely get grazed over. And uh, I know that they're important, but I've never had a really good explanation of exactly what these are, how they operate. So uh, I'm ready to, I got my thinking cap on, ready to learn about these today. It's going to be good. All right, it is going to be good. All right, we're recording this on Wednesday, July 25th, 2018. So if you're listening at some point in the future after July 25th, then you need to tune in to uh, local10.com or check the Max Tracker app or the Local 10 uh, weather app for current information. And this podcast is sponsored by your neighbors at the Miccosukee Tribe. Visit them at miccosukee.com. Find out everything they have going on, and thanks to them for helping us out uh, with this. All right, Luke, um, the tropics continue um, passive. <laughs> yeah. couple interesting things. One is you were talking about the, the feature that's in the western Atlantic right now. There's mm -hmm. this um, 500 trough, this inverted trough, that looks like it's going to roll westward. I'm curious to see what happens at the end of the weekend, early next week with that as it emerges across Florida and gets out into the eastern uh, Gulf of Mexico. Um, you have any thought? Have you, you have any thoughts on what maybe um, everything else is so quiet? I'm looking, you know, way out into uh, early next week, and the Gulf is so warm. Yeah, well, the Gulf is always warm. So sometimes the Gulf is warmer than normal, but the Gulf will always support tropical systems, mm. even in years when it's when it's below normal. It's always well into the 80s. Sometimes it's in the mid 80s. Sometimes it's in the upper 80s. Right, but but. Uh, so that's not an issue. So I don't, uh, you know, the question is, if you're going to have a tropical system develop, you need some sort of mechanism to get it going, something mm -hmm. that has to get it uh, spinning. And in the Gulf, there's been so much shear because there's been this upper level low, uh, more of a September-ish looking thing. It looks like a late September feature dipping down, the jet stream dipping all the way down yeah. into the Gulf. Now, that's supposed to slowly lift out. So... Uh, we'll see. I haven't seen any sign that anything will develop out of that. Um, and it looked like it was going to get kind of mixed up with, with that big upper-level system that's causing all the rain up and down the East Coast before it, it uh, you know, has a chance to do anything. So the, the weather pattern over our part of the Atlantic is so abnormal for tropical season right now. Not that nothing can't develop on the bottom end of all that, but uh, we don't see any sign of it. 
Good. Well, yeah. yeah, when it gets this quiet, you know, really get to start looking for little features out there. Yeah, it does. Nice. It, it does look like the pattern's going to going to change some over the next couple of weeks, yeah. and um, and the you know the issue is, do we continue to have some kind of low pressure generally in the east, which tends to want to pull things up out of the tropics. Just like all this rain up the East Coast is actually tropical moisture going north. Mm -hmm. Well, if there were a feature down there that could get pulled up, that would be the concern. So that's the question. The models indicate that that may uh, indeed be uh, the case. But we're talking a couple of weeks out. Okay. Okay. Uh, so when we uh, getting on to our MJO uh, discussion now, when we talk about you know kind of what's going on in the ocean and atmosphere. Everybody knows that we talk about the temperature of the the water, and uh, is there a bunch of Sahara dust? Is there an El Nino? These are all uh, part of the conversations. But there are other things, as I said before. One is called the MJO, the, the Madden-Julian Oscillation, and the other is called a Kelvin Wave, which is named for a British scientist named uh, Lord Kelvin that we also name a certain temperature scale, technical temperature scale, after. And um, as I said earlier, the guy that I know that knows more about these phenomena than anybody uh, is Dr. Michael Ventris at the weather company uh, outside of Boston, Massachusetts. So, Mike, uh, welcome to our podcast. Hey, Brian. How are you doing today? Thanks for having me. Uh, good. I'm really happy to have you here. So, uh, Mike... What in the heck are the MJO and Kelvin waves, you know, besides sort of the general statement that they're atmospheric phenomena that can either enhance or suppress uh, weather, uh, tropical systems, let's, let's confine to tropical systems because that's really what we talk about here. You know, uh, give us the, give us the uh, bottom line first cut at how you describe these phenomena. Sure. So, um, you know, the best analogy that I have for the tropics is the, an old cartoon television called the, uh, the I'm sorry, the Jetsons. Um, yeah, meet George Jetson. Yes, exactly. And yeah, his boy know, Elroy, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, you know, if you ever watch that show, you look at the cars, and they're all flying at different directions. Um, and you can think of this as the tropics. You know, there are different waves in the tropics that move in different directions, and they interact with one another. Um, sometimes they tend to enhance or suppress each other. So, you know, you know history and, and, and over the Atlantic has, you know, trained us to look at these waves called easterly waves. Um, they usually develop over Africa, and they travel from east to west. Um, but uh, until recently, and, 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 you know, more significantly, uh, more exposure uh, from some of my graduate work, we are noticing there's a lot of waves that travel from west to east and interact with these easterly waves, and that is what, um, you know, is, is, is essentially the Madden-Julian oscillation or, or connected couple of Kelvin waves. Now, there is differences between the two. Um, the MJO is known to be the most dominant form of intraseasonal variability in the tropics. Uh, it has a coherent active or suppressed phase um, that essentially organizes uh, convection in the tropics. All right, so um, let's just hang on a second, Mike, because let, let's just sure. define some of those terms. First of all, intra-seasonal, what you're talking about there is during the hurricane season, right, because in this middle of the season as opposed to kind of an annual year-round kind of phenomena in the tropics. Is that fair? Correct. We're, we're looking at week-to-week -week variability. So, uh, you know, the active phase of the Madden-Julian oscillation could be pushing across the Atlantic and Africa, and it creates a, an environment that's, you know, maybe favorable for thunderstorms for a one or two week period um, versus when the suppressed phase comes through, you know, we can usually see the Atlantic shut down for about a one to two week period. So when you talked about, you used the word convection earlier, you're really talking about thunderstorm activity or when, when we look at the satellite picture, we can actually see it in the brighter colors because the colder cloud tops because the clouds go higher in the atmosphere and essentially the systems get stronger. That's, that's correct. I mean, I mean, with regards to the Atlantic, um, you usually see this enhancement or suppression of those clouds uh, within the location of the ITZZ, which is that area of, of convection that is only strip of thunderstorm activity in the tropics. Um, and this is predominantly north of the equator during the Atlantic hurricane season. If you were to look at the MJO over an area where convection is more prominent along the equator, such as the Indian Ocean warm pool, 
or the West Pacific warm pool, you would see a much bigger response in the tropical convection uh, from these MJO systems. So, Mike, should we think about the MJO and the Kelvin waves as the same phenomena, two ramifications, the same phenomena, or are they different phenomena that just happen to both travel from west to east and cross over the tropical uh, oceans or cross through the atmosphere from west to east and then uh, separately or together enhance the development of systems or suppress the development of systems? Okay, so this is getting into some complex tropical theory um, <laughs> that is not yet understood. So I'll, I'll give you the, the, the way that we kind of we, we think about these features today or, or in the past, maybe the last 10, 20 years, but then there's some new research that suggests that maybe we should change our thought process. So, um, you know, in the past, you know, there was a clear separation between Kelvin waves and the MJO. Uh, for the MJO, we, you know, we typically correlate this with a 30 to 60 day uh, time where it takes uh, one, a single MJO event to circumnavigate the globe. Um, we usually see one area of suppression and one area of, of, of rising air activity associated with the MJO um, phases. So there's two phases there. Uh, with regards to the Kelvin waves, these waves propagate much faster towards the east. Um, you know, typically the MJO propagates about anywhere from six to nine or ten meters per second to the east, depending if it's on a warm pole or not. Um, the Kelvin waves are much faster. Sometimes they can be 15 to 20 meters per second to the east. If they're not coupled to convection, they can actually propagate much faster, anywhere in the order of 40 to 60 meters per second. Um, so, also note for the Kelvin waves, they're spatially smaller. So when the active phase of the MGO pushes across the Atlantic and Africa, the entire active envelope will be from South America all the way to the Indian Ocean. Whereas Kelvin waves, you know, the active envelope could be maybe just the, the set of longitudes of the, of the main development region or, or, the, or Africa itself. All right, so let's, so let's just, just to clear up what you just said there and be sure people understand the difference here. The MJO is a, is a big, wide phenomenon, a big, wide wave that can occupy, uh, say, in the Atlantic sense, good part of the, the tropical Atlantic or even all of the tropical Atlantic and make, uh, when it's in its positive phase, make systems, uh, tropical systems, more likely to develop. And it moves along toward the east at 15 to 20 miles per hour. We, we tend to think in miles per hour here. And Kelvin waves go much faster, sometimes even over 100 miles an hour, but only would be uh, cover part of the Atlantic, only enhance part of the Atlantic or suppress a slice of the Atlantic. Is what I said accurate? Yeah, that, that's correct. They're, you know, the, the spatial sales is, is, to be known, very different. Um, but getting back to the second point that I made about, you know, this being theory, um, you know, we, we have a derivation of the Kelvin wave, on it, um, but we do not have any derivations of the MJO. Um, and, you know, through observations, we are starting to see that the MJO at times can be composed of a single strong Kelvin wave. And, and typically what happens is this Kelvin wave or, you know, this, it will slow down over areas that are preferred to be convection. So over the warm pool. Um, in the Indian Ocean warm pool or during particular ENSO space, El Nino or La Nina, depending on where the warm pool sets up, when a Kelvin wave moves over that favorable environment, it couples with convection, it, it intensifies, it slows down, and then we typically see this type of Kelvin wave morph into what is known as the MJO. So it, it's very difficult to separate the two phenomena, though um, you know, it seems like the two interact and are, are on a spectrum. How do we go about detecting either of these, both the MJO and the Kelvin waves, Mike? Yeah, so the most common way, um, you know, is still in the industry is through the MJO is through the uh, Wheeler and Hendon um, uh, RMM index, and that was created in 2004. It's, it's commonly looked uh, associated with the MJO phase space diagram. Now, these diagrams are pretty complex to understand if they're not used to looking at them. Um, but, you know, it's essentially a line that orbits this, this you know, circular phase-based diagram. Um, and if there's an inner circle, if the line's inside that circle, it's a weak system. If it's outside that circle, it's a stronger system. Um, you know, when I was in graduate school, however, 
Uh, I did a lot of work on, on exploring these phase-based diagrams and, and these types of uh, what we call EOS-based NGO-indices. And, you know, I, there's a lot of flaws associated with them. And I, I spent a lot of time in, in understanding new ways to monitor uh, or identify uh, the MGO Kelvin waves. And, and this was through wave number frequency filtering, um, which essentially, you, you know, you, you isolate a select number of wave numbers in the tropics and, and periods, and you can isolate eastward or westward propagating modes in the tropics. And um, it, it, it's a much smoother process. It's easier for folks to see. Um, and I created a web page when I was at back in the University of Albany, um, which is uh, MikeVentures.Willie.com, if you guys are interested in looking, where I have all these products available where um, it looks at real-time data with a, I think, a seven-day GFS forecast that allows folks to kind of understand where the active phase or suppressed phase of the MGO versus, um, versus the Kelvin wave is located at that time. What was that website again? I'm sorry. Uh, Mike Ventress, M-I-K-E, Ventress, being like a Victor, E-N-T-R-I-C-E, dot Weebly, W-E-E-B-L-Y, okay. com. Okay, cool. So when you're trying to figure out what is going to happen next, where these the MJO or the Kelvin wave is going to go, how hard is that to forecast? And How hard is it to forecast compared to, say, the daily weather? So, you know, it's really interesting. Um a lot of my MJO and Kelvin wave predictions are based off of a, a weather parameter called velocity potential at 200 millibars. So we're looking way up near the top of the troposphere. And it's essentially a wind field that uh, is a proxy for divergence or convergence. And uh, for whatever reason, the numerical weather models do a very good job at predicting this field at long lead time. So we can get reliable forecasts out anywhere from three to five weeks depending on the model you choose of, of this particular field. I'm not sure of the reason why, why, why there's all this enhanced predictability of this field, but it does give us a good estimate of, of um, you know, essentially where an active phase in MGO or suppressed phase, et cetera. There's other things that project on this field, like, um, like El Nino or La Nina as well. So um, it can get a little bit more complex when the two modes intersect, but, um, you know, there are reliable ways to make, you know, this field is a reliable source of data um, that gives us some side of enhanced predictability in, in predicting the eastward propagation of Kelvin's MGL. Now, this was not always the case. The big enhancement of predictability happened after the, uh, I, I believe it was 2010 or 11, when the GFS was updated to a 4D VAR simulation scheme. Um, before that, you know, we typically would see the models take this eastward propagating disturbance in the tropics and then reflect it back towards the west when it hits land. So, um, like South America or the maritime continent, this was known as what we called in the field the barrier effect. And it really hurt model predictions in tropical psychogenesis. Um, but ever since increasing the model physics, the resolution, and the, and the simulation scheme, the models have gotten tremendously better at predicting the types of waves. Okay, so what we're looking for is this phenomenon, let's just talk about the MJO as the, as you said, the dominant phenomena. And it's, uh, it's a wave that's going around the Earth over the tropical zones in the Earth. And mm -hmm. what we want to know, really, is when is it going to come over the Atlantic and therefore enhance uh, activity in the Atlantic so that if there were a tropical disturbance that got started spinning, it would, if it were present in its active phase, it would mean that it would enhance, enhance that development. If it was in its suppressed phase, it would tend to squish that uh, development. So what we're most concerned about, obviously, is the active phase and the enhancement of uh, tropical depressions or tropical storms or, or hurricanes. Uh, so, Mike, uh, as we've uh, looked at it this year, we really haven't seen in the Atlantic, unless I missed it, some kind of, of significant effect from the MJO, but or maybe I should just ask you, uh, what has occurred with the MJO this year, and as you look ahead into the forecastable future, uh, what do you see developing? Yeah, sure, sure. So there actually was a fairly robust MJO passage across the tropical Atlantic. It occurred um, during the late June time frame, a lot of half of June, and we saw a couple of tropical cyclones spin up um, while this MGO active phase was passing. So that was the during the barrel? Uh, during, uh, is that what Barrel and Chris, that's correct. Oh, really? Um, okay. Huh. I missed that. Okay. 
Yep. So, um, you know, the good thing, you know, if you go back to my webpage, there is an archive of, of the, you know, the last, I think, 60 or 80, 90 days. You can take a look at it. Um, you know, the, so there was a passage of the MJO um, active phase. And then over the last probably two to three weeks, we saw the MGO push across the Pacific Basin. And now it's uh, currently located just east of the Dateline, the active phase. Um, and, and this is typically corresponding with upper-level or, or unfavorable conditions for tropical cyclogenesis over the, over the MDR or the Atlantic Basin. And, and you know, we've seen a, a pretty good, you know, lull in activity compared to that very quick start that, you know, was very anomalous. Um, and, you know, it, it's getting a little bit more complex now in, in looking out and trying to predict when the active phase will kind of push back across the Atlantic Basin. Um, and, and that's because there's another feature that is starting to develop in the tropics um, known as a, a standing wave, an atmospheric standing wave. And uh, typically you get these atmospheric standing waves during certain ENSO states, El Nino or La Nina. Uh, right now, we are seeing a developing atmospheric standing wave set up over uh, the central eastern Pacific basin. And that is associated with an atmospheric coupling to El Nino conditions in the Pacific Ocean. That's the and water warming in the kind of central eastern uh, Pacific that's creating rising air there, is what you're saying. That's correct. What happens is where that area is warm and warm enough to support convection, that convection just sits there now and stays there for the entire season. And it was, it was, it was, um, there's a response in the atmosphere that sets up a big global circulation cell that is essentially rising air uh, right where that connection is and divergence aloft. And what that typically does is it changes the circulation over the Atlantic Basin that, that typically enhances your upper-level westerly flow and increases your low-level easterly flow. And that's a, an ingredient that is not really good for tropical cyclones. It, it, we call this enhanced vertical wind shear. So how does, let's, you just mentioned El Nino, and uh, we, you mentioned that the MJO can be forecast pretty far out, three to five weeks. So if, if we put this together, that the uh, El Nino has a, what, 65% chance of developing later on this fall, so whatever that means for now, um, plus the fact that you can forecast the MJO out, uh, what does it look like, in your opinion, for the rest of this hurricane season or can you say yeah so um so typically you know the the government is slow to to name or, or to declare an el nino or a la nina state we actually see el nino or la nina much uh, evolve much quicker than what cpc declares in the atmosphere um and and there are indications that we are starting to see an el nino signature in the upper troposphere emerge that should suppress the, the entirety of the Atlantic hurricane season. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean we're not going to see a hurricane the rest of the year or, or another tropical storm, et cetera. It just it suggests that compared to the seasonal average, we should start to move in a state that is below that seasonal average. So I'm thinking this is a year that's going to feature less storms than last year. Um, you know, if we were trying to say, hey, there's a, there's a window of opportunity here, even though the, the seasonal case is moving into one that does not really support, uh, you know, rapid tropical cyclogenesis, um, I am tracking a, a, a Kelvin wave that's passing the DMDR today, um, and, and I'm seeing indications for potentially another one probably around the, the turn of mid-August. Um, you know, these are maybe windows of, of two to four days uh, where we could see some kind of disturbance in off of Africa, um, but you know, I'm not seeing the the level of, of, of predictability and saying, hey, there's, there's going to be a period of hyperactivity over the you know the Atlantic coming here the next August September. I'm just not seeing it right now, and, and I'm seeing more of the opposite. Um, you know, unfavorable large-scale environmental conditions where maybe Africa looks really good. You get a nice easterly wave pushing off Africa, but then it's, it looks like it's going to move over an environment that is just going to rip it apart or depress it, and it, it, it'll sputter. It'll have a hard time until that system can recurve out into the mid, um, into some tropics and, and maybe have a more slightly more favorable environment. But, you know, I, I'm not seeing much in the sense of saying, you know, there's a big period coming up here. It looks pretty 
team. Compare it to last year. Last year, did you see on your end with the MGAOs going around in our hyperactive season? Uh, did you see that coming? No. So actually, I, I, I was I was fooled here last year. Um, you know, I did see that the Bay State was specifically more of a La Nina state. So there was, I was definitely seeing a, 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 a lean in favor of, of more activity for the entire season in general. Um, but with regards to the NJO, you know, it, it, it seemed last year was just the, the base state was much more favorable um, that you didn't really need uh, essentially these big NJO events to kind of uh, tip the Atlantic Basin into a more favorable state. Usually the Atlantic Basin is on this, this verge of, you know, either being active or inactive. It, it's, it's much different compared to like the Western Pacific or the Eastern Pacific, which is usually always a good, you know, a good bet for a storm to develop every week. Um, um, but last year, you know, the MJO was not a, a real good use of predictor. It was more of just a very favorable base base state. All right, Mike. Uh, Mike Ventress with uh, the Weather Company, which is a division of IBM, uh, just outside of Boston, Massachusetts. Mike, thank you so much. We really enjoyed having you. Let me ask you before you go, uh, because it's I think it's interesting to the meteorologists that are listening. Was there a weather event that you got you interested in meteorology and and took you in this? Uh, direction so uh yeah i mean as every meteorologist will say there's always that one event that sticks out in the back of your mind and then you know carved out a, a path here um yeah i grew up on long island new york so i experienced uh, hurricane bob in 1991 it was just a category one when it hit long island i wasn't a wide yet for gloria in 85 um but you know just seeing some of the, the, the high winds and rain that we got from the trees that knocked down i thought they were very fascinating and that was, you know, the that was it. That was the uh, the, the storm that kind of sparked my interest in the tropics, and here I am today. Yeah, I remember. I remember Hurricane Bob very well. I remember Buzzards Bay on uh, Cape Cod, and it was really a disaster up there yeah. as well. All right, Mike Ventress, thank you so much. We really uh, enjoyed having you on, and and uh, I think we're all going to pay more attention uh, to the MJO hey. and especially the MJO here going forward. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for having me on, guys. Appreciate it. Nice talking to you both. All right. All right. Take care. All right. Let me remind you this podcast sponsored by your neighbors at the Miccosukee Tribe. Uh, visit them at miccosukee.com. Well, so um, so what we have here is or two phenomena, but let's just talk about the MJO, which mm -hmm. is if you look at the MJO, the maps that, that Mike was talking about, it's a big blob. It's like this big blob. And, and you know, if you throw a stone in, in, a, in a pond – or in the bathtub, we see these waves radiating out from it. Then if you take your hand and you move your hand in the water, that makes waves too, and those waves interact, sometimes mm -hmm. plus and sometimes minus, right? So what, what the MJO, we have to think of it as a wave that uh, propagates, but not the normal way that we think of things coming from Africa, propagates really from Asia toward the U.S., so west to east. West to east. So it's most uh, enhanced over, when they say the maritime continent, they're talking about Indonesia and and the land masses there that are involved with so much water. That's called the maritime continent. And then, then it, it propagates in our direction, and it usually weakens as it comes across the Pacific. But then if you have an El Nino, which means you have this pool of warm water in the Pacific, has all this rising air, it kind of it's, sometimes it's hard to see it as it passes that. That's what uh, Mike was saying, because that, that sets up its own circulation uh, phenomena uh, over, the, over the tropics. So let's forget the El, El, Nino, uh, El Nino thing for a second. So here, this, this wave propagates forward, and it kind of tends to spread out a little bit sometimes. But you can, if you get into watching it, you can see it moving forward over the Atlantic and taking a month or a month and a half, um, and Mike says up to two months, uh, to go all the way around uh, the Earth, moving at, at 15, 20 miles an hour. Here's my question. Does it only enhance the thunderstorm potential, thus the tropical cyclone potential, when it collides with an easterly wave? 
or can it does it not necessarily have to have that easterly wave and it's this you know big blob of i assume enhanced showers and thunderstorms no no it's not that's not the way to think about it the way to think about it is a is a phenomenon moving in the atmosphere maybe it's easy to think of of moving high in the atmosphere even though it does involve the whole atmosphere that encourages air to rise so it's a wave just like an upper level trough kind, would be. I think of it like that. Okay. Yes. But but propagating the other direction that encourages air to rise. Gotcha. So if when you have a disturbance and the air is rising, the more that it rises and the faster it rises, the more likely it is to spin up into something. Right? So that's why it, it can enhance the development of tropical systems. Okay. So on the back side after it passes, you get your suppression, then I would assume. Eventually there's a suppressed uh where it discourages rising air. So uh, you get this little plus or minus factor that gets built in uh, because of these phenomena. And the Kelvin wave is kind of a mini MJO that moves faster. Well, the MJO can be over the Atlantic for some you know, week or two, mm. where a Kelvin wave would only be over the Atlantic for a few days. I think we're going to hear a lot more about these in future forecast discussions, and I, I think I think we will as well. And like I said, um, you know, uh, Mike Ventress was the guy that really brought this to the fore in his uh, graduate work at the uh, University of Albany. He's so, not an old guy either. No, no, he's I know. Just cracking he's a, this code. He's a youngster. I mean, it's uh, it's pretty pretty darn scary. Uh, uh, <laughs> I'll tell you that. All right, uh, so um, so that was interesting. So we decided to. Uh, since we're here in South Florida and we're coming into the heart of hurricane season, to talk about uh, one big South Florida hurricane uh, each week here uh, through the hurricane season. And today we're going to talk about the 1947 Fort Lauderdale hurricane mm. is is what it's called because I, I think it's one of the least appreciated and least remembered storms uh, that uh, have hit South Florida. The 1926 Great Miami Hurricane, in terms of, about, I'm talking about hurricanes that are kind of way back, uh, is the most famous, which deservedly it's the most famous. It, If it were to happen again, it would be the worst, uh, I think it's fair to say, the worst natural disaster to hit the United States if that same storm were to happen again. But, but there have been others, and the 1947 uh, Fort Lauderdale hurricane is certainly one of them. It was a bad one, too. So here's the deal. Uh, Brian <laughs> has given me a little bit of homework. So he says, here, here's what we, we want to do. We want to go back and talk about some South Florida hurricanes and do your research. Well, it's easy to do research when the guy that you're doing the <laughs> podcast with wrote a book called The Hurricane Almanac. Uh, is that the correct name? Uh, yeah, the Hurricane yeah. Almanac. Yeah, check it a, out. This is uh, well, except that it's. Uh, I, I have to put a, a quick disclaimer on this because that's a 2007. I wrote that in 2006 and 2007, and I, my intention was to do it every year, and then things intervened and times changed. In any case, uh, the 2007 Almanac, uh, obviously. You know, I wrote it based on what I knew in 2007 and what was available in 2007. Well, since then, there's been a ter terrific uh, project by NOAA. Um, it was honchoed to a significant degree by Chris Lancey, who yeah. we had on the podcast here, right, where they've gone back and re-examined all the data of past hurricanes. So uh, that was not done in 2007 for many of the prominent hurricanes of the 20th century. And so not all of the information in the almanac is the best information available today. It's not drastically different, but some storms, and this is one of them, that when the reanalysis was done, uh, they lowered the, the uh, top winds that they think hit Florida, hit South Florida here, hit Broward County and Southern Palm Beach County especially, uh, they lowered that estimate. Uh, because, and they, there's a whole uh, reason based on and the observation uh, there at the Hillsborough uh, Lighthouse, Hillsborough mm -hmm. Point Lighthouse up there. So uh, anyway, I, I put that caveat in if you do get the, uh, a Hurricane Almanac, which is still available on Amazon, by the way. But if you get one, uh, just bear that in mind that it is not up to date. Well, it's quite a story. So here we yeah, are, 1947. Right. And we have, at one point, a Category 5 mm. hurricane that's going just uh, on the very top part of the Bahamian Islands, right? 
Well, yeah. So uh, that's a good question. Is it? Was it still after? Well, I don't know. Did you look it up to I, see what the, the the latest? I had and, not you know, checked okay, the reanalysis. Okay. So we so. need to have the re- my my sense is the reanalysis says it was a category four over by the Bahamas. Okay. Because very often what happens is what happened back in the day is there would be one observation, and either the observation would be misunderstood or it would be discounted because there were, they'd, they'd find other observations nearby that were nowhere near that high. Okay. Right? So that was part of the reanalysis is to try and verify it. But in any case, it was a very, not only strong hurricane, big. but very big hurricane coming toward the northern Bahamas. And it didn't stop there. It, <laughs> it t- continues its uh, march westward and... This thing is a monster Category 4 hurricane passes with the center of circulation. Now, I know that the reanalysis mm-hmm. may have changed this, yeah. but um, somewhere near or directly over the Hillsboro Beach Lighthouse, which is fascinating to me mm-hmm. because that's my neck of the woods. Right. This thing would have been ripping up where my house stands. But in the 40s, there wasn't a whole lot in northern Broward County. So we had, what, Boca Raton, we have uh, w- what we have today, Boca Raton, Pompano Beach, Deerfield Beach, Coral Springs, some of these towns that are, you know, it's a highly populated area now. Back then it was very sparsely populated. Yeah, right? there was no Coral Springs back then. Uh, Boca had fewer than 5,000 people in it. Yeah, Deerfield. Back then, it was by the way, it was just Deerfield and Pompano. They didn't put, they didn't call no it beach. no beach at the time. I don't think there was Lighthouse Point back then. But the center of circulation now, by the modern estimates, came over right over Fort Lauderdale, right over Fort Lauderdale Beach. So the old estimate back before the reanalysis was that it went over the Hillsborough Light, but the Hillsborough Light observation. Uh, had a wind from the east, essentially, the east-northeast. So that tells you that yeah. the center was to the south. Sure. Right. Well, speaking of the the actual lighthouse and the measurement that it took, an interesting thing there where it, for one point in time, which has since been adjusted, it had the highest sustained wind speed ever recorded uh, with a landfalling hurricane. There have been higher gusts with Andrew mm-hmm. and, you say, other storms, but uh, the highest sustained uh, wind speed, which is what over the course of one minute, but no, that was different. The one mile, <laughs> one, this is really interesting. Listen yeah. to this. I'd never heard of this unit of measurement for wind speeds. It's a mile of wind. It's a length of mm-hmm. wind that Brian explained. Tell us about that, Brian. Okay. Well, so this was, uh, if you go back and look at the original records, it's, it is interesting. And this is why it's so easy for uh, records to be misinterpreted. Because the original records said that uh, that these wind measurements, and they have a whole column of them there during the hurricane, were taken uh, over a minute. I took that, when I read that uh, back when I did the almanac, I took that to mean averaged over a minute. Because that's how we do sustained winds in the United States. When we say that the wind is blowing at 100 miles an hour, we mean on average the wind speed is 100 miles per hour of wind. Okay, so uh, that's what I took that to mean. Well, it didn't. It turns out it didn't actually mean that. What it actually meant. So the the measurement on the top of the Hillsborough Lighthouse was 155 miles per hour, but it didn't mean miles per hour in the way we think of it. It meant uh, using a way of measuring wind called the fastest mile. So, so if you think about wind that comes by, let's say you're standing in the wind and the air is coming by you, right? It kind of goes by you and you can kind of measure it in length. So you go, all right, uh, let's see how long it takes a mile of air to go by me, right? The faster a mile of air goes by me, the faster the wind is blowing. Right? So you're holding on to a plastic bag. <laughs> yeah. You let that bag go. go. How uh, far it goes one mile or how long that takes? takes would that, be. That, that, that would be a measure of the wind speed. It's a different kind of measure of the wind speed, but it's a measure of the wind speed. So if the wind were going by our normal measurement, 60 miles an hour, well, that works perfectly because there's 60 minutes in a mile. And, and the, the, uh, so it works out that that's 60, mile an hour, 60 miles an hour of fastest mile wind as well. But if you get, when you get higher winds, 
than higher wind speeds and fastest miles. That actually ends up a lower number when you do the calculation and the, the calculus required to actually make this work out. Dr. Mark Powell, who worked at NOAA um, extensively on all this after Andrew, uh, actually came up with a formula. And so that's, the, that's given to be the formulas now for converting these fastest mile measurements into miles per hour measurements that we use uh, average of one minute. And so with the Hillsborough Light Lighthouse measurement of 155 miles per hour, you reduce it down because it was fastest mile measurement. So it's actually, by our measurements, a lower number. But it's way up in the air. It's 150 40, feet, yeah, right? It's, I think 100 and you know, whatever it was. I, I actually calculated it at one time. Nearly 150 feet in the air. So we don't measure wind at 150 feet in the air. We measure it actually at... Uh, 30 feet in the air, that's our standard, 10 meters is our standard for measuring wind at the surface of the earth. So you have to reduce it about, to, uh, you know, take it down about 11% uh, for that factor because the measurement was so high in the air. And when you get done doing all that, you end up with a wind speed of 130 miles an hour. So it was the wind speed that was uh, measured in the hurricane uh, but when you correct for it to figure out exactly by the uh, – so you can compare one storm to another, 130-mile-an-hour wind is what that is equivalent to by our normal measuring standards. So that's what was given to be the top wind uh, in the hurricane uh, when it hit. Still a bad mamma jamma. I mean, <laughs> yeah, 130 yeah. – is that is that low cap 4? Where does that yes. fall exactly? So that is uh, by – again, it's another change uh, – few years ago, because there's a confusion and the conversion from miles per hour to knots, Category 4 used to begin at 135. Now mm -hmm. now it begins at 130. It's just there's less discussion about just converting knots to miles per hour to kilometers per hour uh, in different places in the world. So it's uniform. So yes, 130 miles per hour now counts as a Category 4. And it wasn't just a windstorm. It brought an 11-foot storm surge from Fort Lauderdale to Palm Beach, a really big mm -hmm. storm surge, long path to have uh, that storm surge. And they also got it in Miami Beach, which is odd, mm -hmm. since the center of circulation would have been north of there. But I guess it got it on approach. Is that what happened? Well, I, I'm not 100% sure. The, the newspaper articles at the time talk about the storm surge affecting the hotels along Miami Beach. Uh, but but uh, obliquely. So I'm, I'm not, and there's, there are pictures really at Holliver Inlet, uh, technically called Baker's Holliver is what they called it back then. But uh, at Holliver Inlet, there are pictures of the waves crashing on the ocean side, and part of the highway is washed out, uh, A1A is washed out north of the bridge. But I can't tell from the pictures whether it's the bay side or the ocean side that's washed out because clearly um, at Miami, the winds, Miami airport, the winds were from the west, as you would expect from a storm center coming into Fort Lauderdale. So Biscayne Bay would have been pushed very hard against Miami Beach. Yeah. And I don't think there's any doubt that the west side of Miami Beach and all those beaches there was uh, underwater from that storm surge. But but I, uh, I have not seen real clear records of how high it was and what the damage was caused by because the, they said the Miami Beach in, in uh, Miami-Dade County, Miami Beach was the most damaged part of the county, bearing in mind that many of the other parts of the county, the suburban parts, didn't exist uh, in any significant uh, way like they do now. I mean, Sunny Isles Beach or Aventura and all these kind of places that would have been closer to the Storm Center didn't have big high-rises and all that didn't have any high rises uh, that, uh, in 1947. So Miami Beach was the developed place where damage could be done. And they said the damage was done by flooding and uh, flying debris. So we have a big Category 4 hurricane making landfall right over Fort Lauderdale, and then the story gets interesting. <laughs> yes. So we have big flooding with this hurricane, as you might expect. You had storm surge. Six days later... <laughs> A tropical storm passes through and brings more rain to an already soaked area. Well, and, and what was even worse than that is that it had been an extremely wet year. There was a big storm in March, 
and then it was a very wet April and May as well. And so when the rain fell with the Fort Lauderdale hurricane 1947 in September, the, it flooded downtown Fort Lauderdale. The water never left because there was no place for the water to go because the the um, uh, coastal ridge. No, the water underneath the ground called the water table was so high there was no the water could not uh. sink in. So the only thing it could do is slowly flow out. And then, as you said, a tropical storm came. Now this tropical storm went up the Gulf Coast off in the Gulf. But as we've seen with weak systems, the right side is the wet side, mm. right? So it brought this rain up over the entire state of Florida, which caused additional flooding. And then... Yeah, so it's been a week. We've had a Cat 4 hurricane. We've had a tropical storm. You thought we were done. Uh-uh. Here comes another hurricane. It crosses over from, what was it, Cape Sable on the southwest side of Florida, uh, traverses Florida, strengthens as it goes across Florida, and the center of circulation passes over, guess where? The lighthouse. Yeah. Another hurricane within three weeks. Uh, is it? Yeah, right around three weeks. We three and a half. We have two hurricanes over the exact same. Well, potentially. Again, Brian said that the center may have passed over Fort Lauderdale uh, with the first one, but nonetheless, very close to one another. And more rain and extreme flooding out of this. Yeah. So this uh, this one, two, three scenario, uh, including two hurricanes. The second hurricane was a Category One hurricane, and the damage was not really done by the wind, but was done by the water. So essentially all of South Florida was flooded after the second hurricane. And and uh, I, I've never seen it actually proven, but anecdotally people said you could take a boat from Fort Lauderdale to Naples for nine weeks. Get out of here. In, in the fall of, of 1947. Now, as a result of that, in the early, very early 50s, uh, the South Florida Water Management District was formed and enhanced and and a major effort was put in place to improve the canal system at the time. Now remember that most of the western parts of these counties, both Miami-Dade and Broward County with the exceptions of Hialeah and, and a few other places, uh, was agricultural. Right? So West Broward was agricultural much 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 more than it is today. There was there were some locations uh, there in 1947 but but not a lot. So it was mostly farmland that was that was flooded. Some areas stuck up through the farmland, like Pine Island Ridge. People that live out in in um, West Broward drive on Pine Island all the time, right? And that was an island in the hammock in the Everglades, original Everglades. And so, you know, some land stuck up in the flooding, but uh, every place else was pretty much flooded. So there was some good that came out of that with the uh, all the flooding that happened, they um, they developed the sophisticated canals and levees and things that we have today. They've since added pumps. So it was this one, two, three punch that kind of spurred that on. Is that right? Yeah. So the the original digging was done in the first part of, of the 20th century by the governor uh, named uh, Napoleon Bonaparte Broward. Uh, he he was the one responsible for, for real? The, yes for real. original digging yes uh, but then this really developed a canal system where you could build a real metropolitan area on this land that was not so so susceptible to uh, extreme flooding. So one more interesting piece with this. Uh, get your tinfoil hats on because this second hurricane goes out into the Atlantic. GE and the United States government had a top-secret classified project where they were seeing if there were ways that they could weaken hurricanes. The idea here is called cloud seeding, and it's been done really since, what, the 30s, I think, is when it started. It happens all the time in the Middle East. They do it today. China has done it. And it's a form of weather modification, and what happens is, is you can take various particles. Uh, the water vapor in the atmosphere needs something to cling to, to condense onto before rain can be produced, and you can kind of nudge it. You can't really create it. 
but you can nudge showers to produce uh, to or, or clouds rather to produce showers. So you add these things into the atmosphere called aerosols, and one of them is dry ice. One is, I believe, silver iodide is the popular one today. Right. Um, but in this particular case, back in the 40s, they used dry ice. So what they would do is they would fly airplanes around. Uh, the hurricane seed them, you know, put these cloud seeding mechanisms into the into the hurricane and hope that it would produce more rainfall as it was over the Atlantic, rain itself out. And then if this theory worked, you could use it on other hurricanes and then maybe you could stop them from being so destructive by the time that they made landfall. So the project goes underway. It's called Project Cirrus. And as soon as they seed this hurricane, it takes a sharp left turn they didn't think it was going to do that, runs right into Savannah and makes another landfall before it was all done and causes a lot of destruction there. Now, later on, as they reanalyze this, it probably wasn't from cloud seeding. That, you know, that theory for raining out hurricanes doesn't really hold water. It was the prevailing winds. This hurricane would have done that anyway. Uh, but nonetheless, kind of an interesting little footnote on that hurricane. Yeah, and they kept that quiet, too. They, yeah. they, didn't, they didn't tell anybody that they, were, that they had done that. And especially after the storm um, hit Savannah and did quite a bit of damage uh, in the Savannah area. It was a pretty decent uh, Category 1 hurricane. One other thing about that storm is the name of it. You'll see it referred to as Hurricane George uh, sometimes. And indeed, it comes in the alphabet where G would would come in terms of disturbances in the Atlantic. And to the best of my knowledge, it was never used publicly. It was used by the military because the military is where the original names started. And George was the G uh, in in the alphabet that they were using uh, at that time. And then in 1950, eventually they started making those names public. The first one was Hurricane Fox was the Mm. F. They didn't actually during the storm, I mean, while the storm was happening. So they would refer to these after the fact. They'd use these military names after the fact, before that. But Hurricane Fox, the San Juan Weather Bureau's forecast advisories on Hurricane Fox, uh, actually had Fox in them for the first time. And then that's when they were using the Abel, Baker, Charlie, Delta military uh, letters to name the storms. And they did that for 19... Uh, From the 40s, they did it internal in the military. They did it up through 1953, or 51, 50, 51, 52, and then they started using female names in 53. Oh, I thought that they had started with that. I thought that the guy that was, uh, you know, I don't know, in charge at the time named them after past girlfriends or wives or something. Oh, no, that that, that goes back to Australia in the 19th century and how those original names were done, but... But the modern names came out of the military because they had multiple storms going at the same time. And to keep track of them, they, they gave them these, uh, they're really, they're designations, they're really not names. It wasn't until 1953 that human names were, for the first time, attached to uh, hurricanes. And that was done by the National Hurricane Center. Okay. So, interesting. All right, um, I guess... Uh, we're, we're actually a little over time here. So, all right, thanks, uh, everybody, for uh, staying with us here. This podcast is sponsored by your neighbors at the Miccosukee Tribe. Visit them at miccosukee.com, and thanks to them very much for their support and uh, making our podcast possible. And thanks to you for listening uh, this week. We'll be back uh, next week uh, on Wednesday. We'll record it uh, again. and be another I guarantee you'll like it. It'll be fascinating. So until then, have a good week, and um, talk to you then.